those requires recognition in the UNFCCC financial mechanisms and in their boards that with the current setup, many people are being left behind. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode was recorded as a live taping of the podcast produced in partnership with CGIAR, a global research partnership for a food secure future dedicated to transforming food, land, and water systems in a climate crisis. It is part of a series of episodes about the nexus between climate and security, and in our conversation today, expert panelists discuss the multiple benefits of climate adaptation for peace building and human security. The episode kicks off with some opening remarks from Cesare Scartosi, climate finance and peace specialist and senior research fellow with CGIAR Alliance of Bioversity International and SIAT. I then moderate a panel discussion featuring Grazia Pacillo, senior scientist and co-lead CGIAR Focus Climate Security, Catherine Wong, team leader for climate and security risk at the United Nations Development Program, and Helena de Jong, senior specialist for fragility with the COP28 UAE presidency. Please visit globaldispatches.org to view all our episodes as part of this climate security series produced in partnership with CGIAR. And now here is Cesare Scartosi. Hello and welcome everyone to the second installment of the CGR Part 3 webinar series on the multiple benefits of climate adaptation. Today's episode is on the multiple benefits of climate adaptation for peace building and human security, with a focus on the role of climate finance. I am Cesare Scartozzi, postdoctoral fellow at the CGR Focus Climate Security and Alliance with Diversity International CIR, and I'm pleased to be hosting this episode on behalf of Climber Initiative which aims at building a systemic resilience against climate variability and extremes. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we're seeing compounded uh, crises across the globe, exacerbated by multiple risk drivers coming together, including climate change, underdevelopment, food security, sorry, food insecurity, conflict and fragility, and displacement. Meanwhile, financing to address this crisis is limited and doing fast. Against this backdrop, existing financial mechanisms particularly multinational climate funds, must be evaluated for their potential to create synergies across climate action, development goals, peace building, and displacement prevention. And this is the overarching theme of this three-part webinar series. How can we invest in climate adaptation in a way that achieves multiple benefits across these objectives? In today's second episode, we focus on the synergies of climate adaptation with environmental peace building and human security. 
We know that investments in climate change adaptation have a significant potential to contribute to peace and security. When strategically designed and implemented, climate adaptation can empower communities to uh, promote socioeconomic development, uh, shaping environments that are both climate uh, resilience and conductive to peace and stability. Promising examples of conflict sensitive programming include uh, community driven reforestation in post conflict zones, livestock corridors to mitigate uh, land use conflicts community-led resource management systems that prioritize equitable distribution and sustainability, and peace parks, which aim to simultaneously conserve biodiversity and promote cross-border cooperation. Additionally, recent research by CGIR and UNDP shows that uh, those most at risk from climate change are often situated in fragile and conflict-affected settings. Unfortunately, mobilizing funds for climate adaptation to these areas is proving more challenging than expected. Key issues include a lack of uh, conflict sensitivity among financial institutions, uh, risk adverseness among donors, and a lack of absorptive capacity among receiving countries. Yet, there is also a positive shift underway. The international community, as we will hear from our distinguished speakers, is increasingly focused on developing a financial ecosystem that is better equipped to handle such complexities. This uh, shift toward creating a more conflict sensitive financing environment is a critical step in ensuring that funds not only reach the most vulnerable, but also are used to effectively to create sustainable and peaceful change. Uh, I turn it over now to our moderator for this webinar, Mark Leon Goldberg. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I'm the editor of UN Dispatch and host the Global Dispatches podcast. Our conversation today is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. Uh, please visit globaldispatches.org to find all our climate security episodes produced in partnership with CGIAR. Today's conversation is going to focus on how climate adaptation can support peace building and human security. I'll have some questions for our distinguished panelists, and then we will open it up to the audience for questions from you. Uh, to pose a question, simply leave it as a comment wherever you are watching this live stream. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our panel. Grazia Pacillo is senior scientist and co-lead CGIAR Focus Climate Security. Welcome. Thank Catherine you. Wong is team leader for climate and security risk at the United Nations Development Program. Welcome. Helena de Jong is senior specialist for fragility with the COP28 UAE presidency. Uh, welcome to everyone. Let's jump right in with uh, my questions. And Helena, I will start with you. Uh, this year, COP28 will notably feature the Relief, Recovery, and Peace Day on December 3rd. Could you share with us how this significant focus on peace and recovery in the context of climate action just came to be part of the COP28 agenda? And what can we expect from that day? Yes, absolutely. Um, thank you very much. So relief, recovery and peace are indeed a very critical part of the COP28 action agenda. We know that humanitarian needs have been escalating over the past years. Crisis, climate impacts uh, have either caused or contributed to the suffering. Increasingly also droughts, floods, extreme weather events are impacting people's lives, uh, impacting people's livelihoods and interacting with socioeconomic or political stressors, leading to the acceleration of tensions and undermining stability and complicating peace building efforts. 
there has been quite uh, some attention to the intersections between climate change, peace and security in recent years. And it is really an issue that is increasingly addressed in regional and international bodies as well. Egypt, um, the COP27 presidency, really spotlighted this topic during the COP. The United Arab Emirates made climate, peace and security a priority during its tenure in the Security Council. And with all of this in mind, it was really only a logical decision to make this uh, topic an integral part of the COP28 uh, agenda and also to introduce a thematic day uh, to relieve recovery and peace on the 3rd of December. So what you can expect from this day is, first of all, our priority um, event uh, of the day will be the launch of the COP28 declaration on climate relief, recovery and peace, which really reflects the concerns and the common positions of countries and organizations on the need to really urgently accelerate climate action and finance specifically to countries and communities that are affected by fertility or conflict. In addition, the day will also feature a wide variety of thematic and geographically focused events, including, for example, on early warning systems, on early action, supporting renewable energy in fragile settings, cooperation on transboundary climate adaptation in the MENA region specifically, human mobility, um, to name just, uh, just a few. I've been in this position for uh, a year now, and it's really very exciting and encouraging to see how far we've come, I think. We have held many consultations and workshops this past uh, year to build the momentum for these issues at the COP and to ensure that there's a very clear space and a very clear role for the humanitarian and peace-building community to engage in this uh, in COP um, particularly. And of course, also a very clear space for frontline communities to participate and to have their voices and priorities heard in the discussion as well. Uh, thank you. Uh, Catherine, I'm going to turn to you now. Uh, in your capacity at UNDP, what specific projects or policies are currently underway to align climate adaptation with peacebuilding strategies? Uh, also, how is UNDP influencing the global dialogue on these issues in preparation for COP28? Thank you so much, um, Mark, for the question. Thank you to CGR and the, the organizers. I think it's very timely, obviously, to discuss these issues and take stock ahead of COP28 and Dubai. And so, you know, I would say, first of all, in terms of UNDP's work um, on climate action uh, and sustaining peace, um, it's worth noting we are the largest uh, implementer um, of climate action, so mitigation and adaptation uh, within the UN system, and also the largest implement, implement, implementer of um, NDC supports, which is national determined contributions and the Paris Agreement, as well as peace building. So, there are critical opportunities um, that um, that we that um, we are engaged in where we can um, access and trying to find opportunities for win-win approaches to, um, to adaptation and, and peace. And I think, in terms of you know what the gaps are and what needs to be done, first of all, um, it's on the operational front. Uh, and in terms of our adaptation portfolio, you know we are implementing. Um, Something like uh, $425 million in adaptation and conflict in fragile context. And we have a, a pipeline of another uh, $550 million as well. So, uh, providing this direct uh, support to conflict affected in fragile context to make sure that they have access to climate finance um, 
I, I think is, is critical. Um, the strategic part is also really uh, important at the same time, and this is this is um, key to ensure you know, the institutionalization um, of uh, climate related security risks and an understanding of climate peace and security um, within um, climate policies, within global climate governance, and also um, climate financing mechanisms, right? Understanding you know, that what we do at project level now and what that means in five or 10 years um, time, you know, um, how to sustain those results really just depend um, on, on this institutional aspect and, and policies which, um, climate policies which do affect um, conflict prevention and uh, peace building. And in addition to our climate change and peace building portfolios, we also have a dedicated climate security portfolio. And you could consider this to be a testing ground, if you like, for more um, innovative, perhaps um, less risk-averse approaches to um, climate and peace building finance um, in more complex contexts. Um, so we have an opportunity here really to try to pilot some of these um, these approaches and then to be able to scale them at the same time. Um, I think one of the other challenges is that, you know, as mentioned just now, there's very little understanding amongst the climate change community um, of conflict and fragility and peace and security and how they relate to, um, to adaptation and peace. And so uh, this is why we are doing additional advocacy around NDCs and peace, uh, adaptation and peace, and then also working together with the COP27 Presidency Initiative on climate sponsors for sustaining peace, and again with Helena and team at COP28 Presidency as well. I think you know what will be key to our success here is uh, networks and partnerships. Uh, thank you. Uh, Grazia, could you elaborate on how CGIAR, particularly under your co-leadership, is addressing the intersection of climate security and peace? And what roles or actions are you anticipating at the upcoming COP28 to highlight this work? Thanks, Mark. And uh, hi, everybody. Welcome, everybody, to this, uh, this webinar. Um, so when we started uh, our research on uh, climate, uh, peace and security, it, it, it was clear that all the work that CGIAR the Alliance, where this is in another sentence, we're doing on addressing the impact of climate on land, water and food systems. In all of this research, we've been missing a major contribution, the contribution to, to peace and security. We soon realized that we were really ignoring somehow the, the, the cascading impact that climate has on root causes of fragility and, and conflict. So since then, uh, we started, we built a robust uh, research area, the one that falls under the CGR-focused climate security team, that really looks at providing uh, state-of-the-art policy-relevant uh, timely evidence on how, where, and for whom climate is exacerbating root causes of fragility and conflict, and uh, more importantly, it identifies specific solutions that can be used to mitigate these uh, nexus. A nexus, which is highly complex because there are multiple mechanisms whereby climate can actually have an impact on fragility and conflict and vice versa. There are multiple geographical scales, timelines, non-linear dynamics whereby a small change in climate variability and climate extremes, etc., can actually lead to a disproportionately bigger effect on multiple dimensions, including human security and, and 
and conflict, but but also a nexus, a complex nexus that requires highly localized, contextualized um, solutions that they have to come directly from those communities that are affected by by these nexus. And um, within the one CGIR uh, research initiatives, the climate resilience initiatives, which we we, we are talking about today, um, has been very supportive of the transformative power of climate adaptation to produce multiple multiple co-benefits for human security, for conflict, for fragility, for peace and, and security. And with these, the, within these initiatives, uh, since 2022, we have uh, uh, produced a series of innovations, including the Climate Security Observatory, where all of our evidence and science is collated. It is our flagship innovation. But we've also produced tools and guidelines to, to assess the peace potential of climate adaptation and also help uh, big climate funds such as the GCF in increasing the conflict sensitivity, climate security sensitivity of their programming. Now, uh, in relation to COP, I think it's all it, it's evident that international policymakers are becoming more and more sensitive to the agenda. Uh, see, for instance, the COP27, the launch of the CRISP initiative, but also, as Elena mentioned, with uh, uh, this year, for the very first year, we will have an entire day dedicated to, uh, on peace in, in it's not only that. I mean, there's the declaration that, that Elena is uh, is mentioned. So the very first time that we have an event such, such as that. So I don't know that we have to be cautious. Um, we need to sort of keep our hopes down. But I think it's an extraordinary step forward for for these uh, communities to embrace the climate peace and security uh, nexus. And um, we will be a cop. We will make sure that the climate, peace, and security agenda is well represented, and we have many events that we are co-hosting with our partners. So stay tuned for more details and information on this. And uh, so here, over to you, Mark. Thanks. Uh, uh, thank you, and Helena. We're going to go back to you. Uh, so, current institutional frameworks and the UNFCCC financial mechanisms are arguably not adequately reaching populations in fragile and conflict-affected settings. From your perspective, how can this be improved in order to better reach these populations? Thank you. Yes, they certainly do not adequately reach populations in such settings. This has been very clearly demonstrated by several recent studies who basically all pointed to the fact that the more fragile a country is, the less climate finance it receives, despite the climate vulnerability of these countries. And it has also become very clear from some of the evaluations of the UNFCCC financial mechanisms. Start with the recognition that current efforts to build climate resilience uh, are insufficiently tailored or insufficiently targeted to the needs of countries and communities in fragile and conflict-affected settings. So it requires recognition in the UNFCCC financial mechanisms and in their boards that with the current setup, many people are being left behind. And having the numbers is um, very important um, here to clearly show that there is a, a gap. And both UNDP and CGIR actually have uh, have been instrumental in bringing out this, uh, this element. And a couple of other organizations as well um, have really played an important role in putting the exact numbers on paper and making that very clear. So second of all, um, I think it really requires a granular understanding of the issue at stake. It's really not just the amount of finance that is available. And developing countries more broadly and fragile and conflict affected countries specifically 
really face a lot of barriers and challenges in terms of accreditation, in terms of application um, procedures. These procedures really take, uh, take years, are very bureaucratic, and they also cost a lot of money and a lot of um, capacity. Then there's also the risk, both real and perceived, with operating in such settings. And this is something we very frequently hear from, from finance providers, that the mechanisms are simply not set up to work in fragile um, or unstable environments. Situations can really quickly change, which means um, that investments and gains from projects will be lost. But there are several opportunities to improve. And in my view, a lot really comes down to greater flexibility from these financial mechanisms as well as capacity strengthening of governments and uh, local actors. Uh, thank you. Uh, Catherine, we're gonna turn back to you. Given your expertise in recent work, how can we tackle the problem of climate finance and peace building, typically working in silos and on different timescales? What are some effective strategies for integrating these program areas, particularly when developing and implementing policies in regions requiring requires humanitarian uh, relief and interventions as well. Thanks so much, Mark. I think this is um, an important question. And um, in the emergency context, humanitarian um, support is, is critical and life-saving. We could also make um, the same argument, adaptation, investments exactly the same way. And so we need to think about um, short-term and long-term needs at the same time and make sure that um, affected populations, vulnerable populations, they have that access they, they urgently need to humanitarian finance, but that um, humanitarian response isn't crowding out um, the, the much-needed investment adaptation at the same time. Uh, we, need, we do need to uh, bolster capacities in the short term, but make sure that, um, again, that these short-term investments um, will not amount to um, maladaptation or false economy in the long run. Um, Secondly, I think it's important to uh, understand climate finance. It's not being a, in, a, in a vacuum, so to speak. And Helena kind of alluded to this point just now. You know, if we want to change climate finance, you know, that climate finance is an instrument of climate policy. Right? Climate policy um, objective of it is to direct climate finance to um, the climate priorities that we decide upon. And so um, there's a challenge here. You know, if we had an additional million dollars for conflict-affected and fragile context adaptation finance. Or 10 million or 100 million or a billion, what would we do with that finance? And uh, these kind of questions, you know, they, they need to be asked at uh, both a national and a local level. So, you know, um, changes, the much needed changes that we need in climate finance need to be, um, need to be accompanied um, by technical support, by uh, capacity building investments at the same time to be effective to, and, and to ensure um, absorption. So we really cannot consider the question of um, climate finance and peace separately from border questions of adaptation, mitigation, um, and uh, technical um, technical support in the climate field um, without um, due consideration of, of prevention and peace building at the same time. Um, there are many countries that struggle to access climate finance. Many of them, as Lena said, are conflict-affected or fragility-affected as well. And there's a lot of different networks where such countries can exchange from many different um, um, areas of um, sustainable development um, support um, and, and peace building in other areas as well, but none that specifically target climate policy and finance. So uh, we are working together with the Conference of the Presidency and the Climate International Centre for uh, Prevention and Peace Building to um, deliver uh, a, net, a network 
um, and uh, training support through the Plant Peace and Security Experts Academy so that conflict-affected and fragile contexts um, are able to connect and exchange experience on um, climate policies and finance that also took on sustained peace. Uh, thank you. Uh, Grazia. In many conflict-prone regions, agriculture and food security are deeply entwined with issues of stability and peace. From your perspective, how can climate finance be applied not just to enhance agricultural resilience, but also to contribute to peace building as well in these areas? Thanks a lot, Mark. Um, so I have two points here. Uh, the first one is the need to transform uh, climate action, climate finance as a consequence to, to, to become effectively an instrument for, for peace. We need to transform that. The second uh, is, is that we, we need to de-risk um, climate finance in, in, these, in these areas. So regarding my first point, um, as we moved ahead with our research on climate uh, peace and security, we, we, we realized that effectively traditional climate adaptation and climate action, climate finance uh, approaches, they're not, uh, they're not enough anymore. Um, they're not enough because we've seen many times and we've seen in many occasions and contexts episodes of maladaptation where, where people have adopted climate adaptation uh, practices and then they ended up being worse off simply because the uh, the compound effect of climate on other dimensions uh, uh, for human security or for conflict, conflict they were not accounted for. Um, the solution for these, and I will borrow some of the concepts from Macroeconomics 101, is that we really need to use sort of a general equilibrium approach as more systemic uh, lens a, a bigger uh, lens uh, whereby we we, we look at the, the, cl the climate crisis. So one approach that really acknowledges the, the, the cascading effects that can be generated by the accelerated accelerated uh, climate crisis. Um, one that aligns resilience objectives with other objectives, core benefits that can be generated by climate adaptation, including peace building. One that really transforms climate adaptation, climate action, climate finance, and, ma finance and makes them uh, instruments for peace, as, as the new Secretary General sort of is, has indicated in the new agenda for peace. Uh, but the other major issue is, of course, that even climate finance has not been designed to be invested in risky area. Investing in risky area is risky. So, uh, but the tricky issue is that most of the fragile conflict affected countries are those that are also in need of the climate adaptation funds are the, uh, in, in action. And our recent research uh, shows that um, the, the 142 million households, uh, which is 527 people, are located in fragile conflict-affected countries uh, that are also most in need of, of climate adaptation. Uh, but of course, the solution, uh, the, the, the question is, how do we de-risk these, these countries? And I think that we think that knowledge is key. Knowledge on the type, intensity, and frequency of the risks that can help implementers to understand how to mitigate this risk is important. And one of the things that we're doing, and sorry, I'm going a bit over time here. Uh, one of the things that we are doing together with uh, the, the Green Climate Fund is to the development of the climate security programming dashboard. Uh, this dashboard essentially aims to de-risk investments, de investments to increase conflict sensitivity of the Green Climate Fund interventions by, by providing knowledge and data and the, the self-assessment self self-assessment tool, sorry, to help accredited agency to design their projects. And we will be launching that uh, that, that COP and we hopefully, it will hopefully uh, become the go-to place for accredited agencies for uh, their the projects and proposals. So over to you, Mark.
Uh, thank you. And just a reminder, we'll be getting to audience questions soon. If you'd like to leave a question, simply type it in the comment field wherever you are watching this live stream. Uh, Helena, in your view, what are the critical gaps or overlooked areas in current approaches to integrating climate adaptation and peacebuilding efforts, particularly in the context of international negotiations and frameworks like COP28? And how can we make sure that COP pledges on these topics translate into actual increased financing and support to populations affected by compounded climate security threats? Well, so in the context of the COP, I think it's fair to say that there hasn't been much attention to the nexus between climate adaptation and peace building, if any at all. And this is not just the case for peace building, actually, it has the same for some other issues like health, for example. I think food and water are a bit more prominent, but it's often about systems, not about people. So what is really most important in my view is that we adopt a much more people-centered approach. The effects of people are really not always clear from the very technical discussions um, and uh, negotiations that take place in processes like this. Even though, of course, the loss and damage discussion um, is bringing this out a little bit more, but I think it's, it can definitely be strengthened. So one critical element uh, that I think could and should be much more clearly reflected in climate adaptation efforts is uh, conflict sensitivity and peace responsiveness. And um, Grazia and, and Catherine men mentioned this both. There are several good examples out there already that demonstrate that integrated climate adaptation and peace building programming can really lead to, to strong results in terms of social cohesion, in terms of um, improving relations between host communities and displaced populations, and also in terms of inclusion and participation of women and, um, and other groups. And as for COP pledges, we really see this as a systemic effort. It will take time to change the existing procedures, um, but from the discussions that we are having, um, and many of these discussions are with the, with the climate finance front and also with other climate finance providers. There definitely seems to be an openness and willingness from, uh, from them to engage on this topic. What we do really see, I think, is a mismatch between the immediate needs of countries and communities, particularly those affected by conflict and fragility, and the time that it will take for climate finance flows to properly reach fragile and conflict-affected settings. So in addition to immediate allocations of finance, which I think are really, really critical um, to support climate adaptation in such areas, we will really need to see more procedural changes to increase uh, finance and support. So this, I think, will hopefully be reflected at the COP and will be a stepping stone towards like longer term systemic change on this uh, on this matter. Uh, thank you. Uh, Catherine, your recent publication, Climate Finance, Conflict and Gender, Benchmarking Women's Empowerment and Sustaining Peace in the Journal of Environment and Security has added crucial insights to this conversation. Where do you see significant gaps and unexplored avenues in policy or practice when it comes to using climate finance as a tool for both environmental and peace-building outcomes? Thanks so much, Ted. I think um, you know, from this article, 
the first thing that I, I really wanted to do is try to capture some of the work that we are doing as UNDP in this particular space, not only looking at um, climate uh, climate action and uh, conflict contributing, but, but also um, gender and, and women's empowerment, knowing that uh, women suffer the most from the dual burden of, um, of climate um, extremes, impacts um, and conflict. And I think what's interesting is that we found um, that you know the lack of awareness was really um, one of the biggest gaps, and that's lack of awareness of the importance of conflict and fragility to climate action and climate finance. Even though a study by the Jeff um, Independent um, Evaluation Office shows that conflict is the number one obstacle and to um, the number one um, factor in terms of delays or postponement or cancellation um, of Jeff projects. Um, there's still a lack of um, understanding at a kind of um, global and also national level. I mean, if you're looking at the Paris Agreement, if you're looking at UNFCCC, uh, if you're looking at the Crazy Protocol, which came before it as well, um, there's not a single mention of conflict, contributing or pieces of security. So there's just this lack of um, awareness um, of, um, of conflict uh, as it relates to climate action in uh, the climate change community, and then also um, the solutions as well, what we can do here to address conflict I mean, our climate change. Uh, projects and I think um, you know uh, this this article this study shows that you know we can um, take um, our our uh, approach to gender and gender mainstreaming um, in the field of climate policy and finance and apply that approach to um, conflict and peace building and if you look at um, if you look at the uh, Jeff's portfolio in 2012 they found that 60% of the projects were gender blind and then after they instituted the gender policy eight years later. Um, it's less than 1.3% of their projects are gender blind. So this is from having a gender policy and being able to implement it. And so if we could do the same for, for conflict and peace building, you know, one could argue we could have a, a kind of considerable, uh, wide-reaching um, approach in terms of making sure that climate policy and finance um, even into conflict-affecting behaviors. Uh, thank you. Grazia, the CSPD dashboard that you are going to launch at COP introduces new concepts of conflict sensitivity and peace potential into mechanisms that are very unusual for big climate funds. It's not going to be easy to integrate these into the modus operandi of international financial institutions. Looking at the near future, what is your call for action to transform climate adaptation and finance? Thanks, Mark. Um... So I think we all agree that a lot more needs, needs to be done, and we're only at the beginning of, of this process. Ideally, we all would like to, as Elena said and, and Catherine said, uh, we all would like IFIs to, to, to really embrace, that could include and integrate the conflict sensitivity analysis and assessment across the entire project cycles. But the reality is that most of the IFIs will not do it in the short term. It's not in their political mandate. Some of the states that we all know about, they are even opposed to the idea that climate can exacerbate root causes of, of, of conflict. Uh, so the dual securitization uh, issue here. So um, we need to accept incremental steps. So we need to detect this step by step, small changes that can yield significant benefits. So for instance, uh, we, we could we could expect IFIs, we will we, we, we sort of urge IFIs actually to do so um, as soon as possible to, to, for instance, create some training for on conflict sensitivity for the staff 
to embed climate, climate uh, conflict sensitivity uh, analysis into their evaluation processes, monitoring monitoring system, etc., or even to assure mechanisms that where, whereby the conflict and fragility risks are embedded into their existing safeguard and, and risks approaches. This will not require any change, major change that we go to the board and ask for policy changes, mandate changes, etc. These are very simple steps that they fall under their mandate that can really be done in a, in a Easy, easy way. Another thing that we would urge IFIs to do is to collaborate but more effectively. And I don't even know if they do it now, to be honest. So to start collaborating with peace building funds. Um, oftentimes they work with the same actors, they work in the same countries, they just don't talk to each other. So there's climate resilience, and climate adaptation, climate mitigation that has been implemented by IFIs, and then there is peace building fund doing something else with the same people. So of course, I mean this is not uh, this is not uh, good. Um, I think as we move ahead in this compound uh, compound risk area in the poly crisis area, we need to make sure that we create a platform, we create a community of practice, a group, a coordination uh, group whereby IFIs, peace building funds, and other research organizations working on the nexus, they really talk to each other, they share knowledge, they share data. Uh, they share lessons learned because ultimately what we want and what we really need to do even in light of the COP that is coming we need to discuss how a fine measure to mitigate the impact that climate is having on multiple dimensions not only the, the you know the agriculture the, the, the land water to systems but the human security overall and we can only do that if we learn from each other and we build on each other's strengths thank you over to you mark uh, thank you. And again, a reminder to get your questions in. I have uh, one last round of questions for our panelists, and I'm going to ask each of you to answer the same question. Uh, and that's this. Given the growing number of organizations now operating in the intersection of climate adaptation and peace building, there seems to be a lack of coherent and integrated understandings of the challenges and solutions in this space. From each of your perspectives, how can we create an ecosystem where different entities from international organizations to local communities work together more effectively, ensuring a unified approach towards climate resilience, peacekeeping, and human security? And, and Helena, we'll start with you. Thank you, Mark. Um, I think it's a very broad question, but something, um, but a very important one. Um, something quite concrete that I have noticed working on this topic is that in the last year or so, or maybe 24 months, um, there have been an increasing number of working groups that are being established um, that include experts from NGOs, peacebuilding actors, the multilateral development banks, the climate finance funds, humanitarian development actors, like all the all the actors working in this space are really cross-cutting. So I think that's very, very important to have these types of places where you can discuss and exchange lessons learned with each other, and also to some extent um, hold each other to, to account. And what is really important here, I think, is that we don't just bring in the fertility experts from all these organizations, but that it is really like a cross-cutting um, conversation between both climate, fertility experts, uh, and other uh, other actors in this space. So really having this platform um, for conversations is critical, I think. Then, of course, training, guidance documents, um, the dashboard that CJR has been, been working on, that's also super, super important. 
And what we are trying to achieve, particularly with Relief, Recovery and Peace Day, is also really to provide this space for all of these different actors to, to come together and to see what the next steps are. First of all, what are the challenges? What do we need to address? But also really outlining the way forward. Uh, thank you. And Catherine, to you. Thanks so much. I, I think I definitely agree with um, both Gretchen and Helena on the importance of um, communities of um, practice and in the UN system um, under the climate security mechanisms. So that's inter uh, interagency initiative uh, between DPPA, that's Department of Political and Peaceful Affairs, DPO, Department of uh, Peacekeeping Operations, and UNEP, UN um, Environmental Program, UNDP. Um, we have a community of practice of some 500 members, um, staff members working for the UN, and in 35 different agencies um, and headquarters in the field. So, you know, we have a safe, a safe space, so to speak, to be able to exchange on um, good practices, on lessons learned, um, on climate and peace building um, approaches and financing um, in, in these um, particular crisis and conflict affected contexts, to be able to make those connections organically to share the work that we're doing, uh, crowdsource good thinking and um, promote uh, knowledge uh, management and co-generation. And another similar space, again, that we've cultivated, as I mentioned just now, is this kind of peace and security experts academy. Really, there's um, a need to think about um, and to, you know, to encourage um, um, this um, uh, kind of peer-to-peer -peer exchange between conflict and fragile context. There's policymakers that are working on climate, climate finance, um, and peace building finance, um, allowing them to connect and share what works um, in in these particular regions and affected areas, knowing that um, other other good um, good cases, good practices, um, could not be applied in the same um, not be applied in the same way. And I think, um, I mean, a unified approach is um, is uh, challenge, challenging as well. Uh, climate manifestations, uh, conflicts, uh, drivers. Violent, not only violent conflict, but insecurity um, and fragility as well. They play out in different ways. And so um, context specificity, I think, is critically important here as well. And being able to do this um, at a global level, interregional exchange is, is key, but also at, at a national and local level. So we are working um, on approaches to strengthen regionalization, um, if I can call it that, working with regional entities in the global south and bolstering their capacities to address conflicted security risks. And then at the same time, uh, the localization agenda, so working with local peace building networks, working with partners who are there um, to make sure that they are um, uh, in, the, in the driving seat, so, so to speak, so they can defining what approaches work for them. Uh, thank you. And, and Grazia, to you, what, what can we do to harness this, this unified approach? Thanks, Mark. Um, so I think we all agree that in, in the past decades, we're five, 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 to 10, 10 years, the, the evidence on the, the, the fact that the, the climate can uh, impact uh, conflict and insecurity um, is, is increased uh, enormously. But when we talk with the policymakers and decision makers overall, even those that are deciding about the allocation of climate funds, they all ask, okay, where is the where is the actual evidence that I can use here, a national, regional, international level? And so there exists a fundamental disconnect between science and then policy. So when when we then say, okay, what is the, the most authoritative uh, piece of research that that you will like to, to have on, on these? And everybody turns out and say, okay, what is the IPCC report saying? 
Um, and I think that that's, that's where we have to reflect and where, where we have to change things. When we look at the IPCC, the, the very, in 2022, I remember that the work paper number two, I think it was the first time where climate security was actually mentioned, the impact of climate of COVID was, was actually mentioned that there was some evidence on that. Um, in the new agenda for peace that UN Secretary General uh, released this year, published this year, there is a clear demand for a technical working group, an expert group, to be created, or a special report even to be written within the, the IPCC. And I think that is something that could be done, but of course we will need to have support. And now I'm looking at, at Elena, we're not looking, uh, but, but thinking about Elena UAE, the commit, commitment to climate security, how can we leverage this commitment of a UAE and other countries that we know are supportive of this agenda to actually push for such a technical working group to be created in IPCC to support the new agenda for peace. And uh, still in line with the, with this um, uh, this idea of bridging the science policy gap, I think it's important, as, as, as uh, Catherine mentioned, that we don't forget that oftentimes this type of research is driven, these type of decisions are driven by a uh, northern institution, by northern uh, northern uh, countries. It's, it's about time that we decolonize this agenda, we localize the information and the knowledge, we empower uh, local, uh, global, global south researcher. And, and for that, as a team at CGIR, Focus Climate Security, we, we are really supportive of, of, these, of the, these ideas. We would like to really push for the creation of partnerships that really enable the Global South to go to these places of power, including the DIPCC. So thank, thanks a lot, Mark. Uh, well, thank you all. I am now going to pass the microphone to Peter Lauterach of CGIAR, who has been monitoring the comments in the live stream and is going to pose some of your questions to our panelists. Uh, Peter, over to you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mark, for your great uh, moderation. Yeah, in, indeed, uh, the chat is is going very lively here. We have uh, many, many, many good questions. So let me uh, get started. So the first one for Helena from Andrew Harper. So CGR has been providing excellent analysis data on the likely impacts of the climate emergency in fragile and conflict-affected states. But what can we expect from COP28 to get adaptation funding to impacted com communities? Very good question. Um, so as I said in my previous response, what we're hoping to do with um, the Relief, Recovery and Peace Day and putting this topic very firmly on the agenda for COP28 is really to urge um, countries specifically and finance providers specifically, climate finance funds, the multilateral development bank, others, to really um, recognize that there is a lack of finance going to uh, fragile and conflict-affected communities, but to also put forward solutions as how we can change this. So this is really, uh, to some extent, a matter, a matter of like their internal discussions. And we've asked each and every single one of them, everyone we spoke with over the past year, to really um, think about what their individual role is and what they can put forward to um, to change this, uh, this issue. And this is something that we're looking to announce uh, in the form of a package of solutions that will accompany the declaration, which is more of a political recognition that this is an issue in the first place. Excellent. So we hope to get um, many uh, important pledges and we're looking forward to, to seeing those. 
Another question from Christoph uh, Belperon. Peace building and climate experts need to sit together to design jointly such climate action sensitive sensitivity to fr fragile and conflict. Do you have examples of platforms, networks where this happens? I'm a climate resilience expert, but I have very little understanding of peace building work. So any platforms and networks for, for colleagues who are following here where they could join and, and learn when they're from either from the climate side or the, from the peace building side. So any recommendations? Maybe you can can start and uh, uh, yes, can can show me. So at the moment there are a few groups of uh, technical technical working group on climate security, climate security experts uh, that are related to to several conferences. For instance, the Berlin Climate Security Conference, but there is the Munich Security Conference. But also within the UN Security Council, there's this sort of informal groups of of experts and and country member states that discuss this issue. But they fundamentally uh, create. Christopher, thank you. You 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 really um, you you're really right in saying that. You know, we we don't have a space where where uh, there is an effective cooperation and the cooperation mechanism that puts together not only the researchers from the global north, global south, and across different organizations to really discuss and share knowledge and practices on this, but the, but then we, we 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 don't have the space for co-affected communities to bring their voice and their participation. This is something that we are, we are trying to do with our work, with our research, to really bring the voice of affected communities, uh, but, but, but we need to do more. Um, and for instance, now we are starting a, a project in Somalia, which we know, I mean, highly vulnerable to climate uh, climate impacts, but also like a conflict in the uh, fragile affected country. So, but where is the, the, the coordination mechanism? Where, where is the framework that will allow us to understand who's working and what, and what can we do together to really uh, sort of escalate, create spillovers across across the work that we are all doing together? So I think the way forward is to create it, to foster this coordination mechanism uh, even more than we've done so far. Uh, under the acknowledgement that, as I said, we live in a polycrisis area, so we cannot really only tackle climate resilience on one side because we will have spillovers on, on, on other levels. So now that we will have a food security crisis, we will have a conflict crisis. So I think we need to we need to change our our operation, uh, the, the way that we do things, sort of in isolation somehow. And I know that some coordination exists at country level, regional level, etc. But we need to use the climate security lenses now to change the way that we're doing things. And we, there's still a lot a lot more than needs to be done there. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, Katrin, any networks, platforms that you're aware of or anything you'd like to share? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Peter. Um, right, so I got there first as I was trying to work out how to put my um, hand up. I just wanted to kind of agree with my observations as well in terms of the Berlin Climate Security Conference and Stop Crop Hand Forum. We see many, um, many access experts and practitioners on um, climate peace and security in these four these are um, great places to, to network and to make to make um, contacts as well but as that's uh, also alluded to I mean a lot of this um, work in terms of programmatic design like conceptualization of these um, of these initiatives um, takes place um, at, at kind of country office level or local level as well so um, I'm not sure um, where this office based but it would be great to keep in touch we are also trying to develop um, a roster of experts on climate peace and security. This um, expertise is so hard to come by those who have a good grasp of climate environment on one hand and peace and security um, on the other. So there are various different uh, calls for proposals, um, calls for experts. Um, I see a lot of activity 
um, on LinkedIn and other social media outlets as well. And you know, we do try to support this. We also have, have um, a mailing list um, within the UN, the UNDP, um, where we try to keep colleagues abreast of the work that they're doing as well. So it'd be great to keep in touch um, with this as well. Thanks so much, Peter. Super. Excellent. So um, we have another question here. Uh, sorry. Um, from Garrett Adler. Uh, I would be curious to hear more about specific climate adaptation interventions that have yielded positive outcomes for peace and security. Also curious about some specific examples of climate adaptation intervention that do a good job of considering conflict sensitivity. So uh, anybody who would like to take that one? I can start if you want. Um, real quick, sorry, Catherine, if you want to go, <laughs> go, but I start. Um, thanks. Uh, so so let me say that we're still at the beginning of this journey and uh, examples on uh, climate security, uh, climate security sensitive uh, adaptation projects or uh, peace building projects. I mean, they are still still coming. There's been a review done by the peace building fund on their project on on the, the, the these case studies of these projects that have contributed to both climate resilience and peace building. But as I said, we are still at the beginning. We still need to understand how. Uh, how is it possible, how will it be possible to, to transform climate adaptation and make it an instrument for conflict prevention, for peace, uh, for peace, etc. So one example that I can give you is still from the Peace Building Fund Fund Review is uh, of two projects that were implemented in Yemen, uh, where that um, aim to uh, mitigate local water blockages and associated conflict in, in the country, which is uh, one of the most water scarce in the world and one where conflict dynamics have halted many local peace building and development activity for more than uh, a decade. Um, so the, these projects have, have shown that uh, uh, using an innovative approach to include women in local water management dispute resolutions, they've also succeeded not only to uh, overcome gender barrier in the, this country, but, but but also in creating more a uh, more stable, less fragile, and less less conf confrontational environment around specific local uh, natural resources access uh, and management. Uh, also contributing to, of course, granting better access to. to to water, to, to, to different uh, people involved uh, in um, in the project, but also to alleviate uh, local conflict and then sources of uh, vulnerability. Um, so I will stop here. Perhaps this is one 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 case, but the, the review actually identifies forty three projects that have uh, contributed to, to both climate resilience and peace. But uh, we're still still learning as we go. Over. Super great great examples, uh, Catherine. Yeah, th thanks so much, Peter. I could try to. And here as well. I mean, from UNDP side, we, we, we're fortunate, uh, in addition to have the broader support that we have from our UN colleagues through the climate security mechanism and the UN community of practice on climate security, uh, with the uh, support seal, we're able to deploy climate security advisors to all our regional hubs. And they play a critical role in, in backstopping some of um, our investments through various different bi bilateral and multilateral um, funds and funding sources as well. So. From our side, there are, I would say, a good number now of um, projects um, that are um, under implementation or in pipeline of, of considering um, conflict sensitivity. But, you know, the, the challenge for me, I think, is, um, you know, scale and um, to be able to do it systematically. And I think that can only start at um, fund level. I mean, we could do everything that we can, but sort of project by project, unless we could have some um, kind of policy guidance or some 
some hard requirement from from particular funding source. And then the other challenge here also relates to conflict sensitivity. Imagine how do we measure something that we avoided or did not happen? So there's uh, this particular challenge. And then um, the other, probably slightly bigger challenge is, again, in terms of metrics, how we measure uh, the impact of our climate work, right? And climate finance is allocated uh, based on climate rationales and direct climate benefits, being able to show that you are contributing to um, adaptation um, and mitigation. And so, uh, you know, the allocation of climate finance isn't uh, decided, if I can if I can describe it as such, then by uh, conflict sensitivity or, or peace-building co-benefits. But we know that... Um, you know, conflict again is an obstacle to climate action adaptation, and that climate um, finance and climate action adaptation, if we get it right, can also have co-benefits with peace as well. So I think somehow by changing our me our metrics, being able to show that we are measuring and, and maximizing peace co-benefits, you know, we can actually get to more systematic approaches and being able to demonstrate our our impact in terms of um, of prevention and sustaining peace. Super. So, so many good examples, but we need to get to scale. Huh? So, I have another, uh, just a last question, and so I ask you to just uh, respond in thirty seconds uh, for those who have an answer. Uh, what role do private sector, private sector investments play in complementing governmental efforts in climate adaptation, and how can these two sectors better collaborate in fragile and conflict-affected settings? So, anybody, thirty seconds. Yeah, can um, we bring the it's like a to, to jump in and <laughs> very quickly. I think um, bankable adaptation projects, um, obviously the hot pellet garden, critically important. There's lots of ways I think we could get get to these in terms of working with um, local farmer groups, local local herder groups. Um, so working with um, these um, group, groups as well and promoting formalisation. Maybe they have better access to credit. Um, they have more sustainability. Um, in terms of their practice and bringing products to market. And then also maybe it's a way of strengthening social cohesion. And at the same time, if we're looking um, in conflict spectrum and fragile context, there are lots of small providers that are already there that are working in the energy sector, right? And so it's making sure that our investments don't crowd out these um, actors who are actually encouraging and creating that enabling environments for them to thrive as well. Excellent. Any, uh, any feedback from COP presidency or Grazia, Elena or Grazia? No. Elena, do you want to go next? No, otherwise I have a comment. Please. Okay. Um, well, uh, as I said before, uh, localizing is everything. Uh, local, the localization agenda needs to be applied to the HDP nexus, the humanitarian development, the peace nexus, and the private sector coming from the countries that, that, that are most affected by the compound risk of climate, peace, and security. I mean, they have the solutions. Uh, so one example that I can give you is the within the, the Fragility Conflict and Migration Initiative, the once a year Fragility Conflict and Migration Initiatives, we are implementing the, what um, Peter is called, is called it, we're implementing the, the idea of accelerating um, the in accelerator to support the to couple the CGR scientists with local private sector, local innovation, local uh, um, uh, companies and, and groups that have like, good ideas on how to uh, create co-benefits for peace along the, the humanitarian development, the peace nexus, um, the, and then support them in implementation of, of these ideas. So I think that uh, if we are able to include uh, and to, to, to uh, anyway, um, support and, and help local private sector to, to implement those ideas, I think it will be key to, to addressing specific uh, issues in, in these countries. Super. Thanks so much. Thanks to the panelists for a very engaging discussion. I will now hand over to Cesare Scartozzi, 
to wrap us up and uh, summarize the, the exciting discussion that we had today. Cesare, over to you. Thank you, Peter. With a very engaging conversation, uh, with uh, many insights that the panelists navigated through the critical aspects of climate adaptation and uh, its integration with peace building, uh, particularly in the lead up uh, to COP28. Um, so it would be hard to summarize uh, everything, but uh, I will try to focus on uh, some of the key uh, uh, topics uh, that were covered. So Helena highlighted the integrated, uh, sorry, uh, integ integration of uh, the relief recovery in Peace Day into COP28, marking a strategic shift in uh, linking climate action with peace and recovery. She uh, created Egypt for initially spotlighting this theme and noted the UAE's role in solidifying it within the COP framework. Uh, she also addressed the crucial need for climate finance uh, in project states, uh, pointing out the current mismatch between uh, financial provisions and the immediate needs of these regions. She also emphasized that um, not just the, the quantity matters, but also the method of fund allocation and also the delivery is uh, vital. Um, so it's really important to streamline uh, how these funds can be accessed. And uh, uh, concluding her talk, also she uh, stressed the importance of bringing together different actors at COP28, uh, which will serve hopefully as a platform for a, a significant change uh, in addressing these challenges. Um, moving to Catherine, she provided key insights into uh, emerging climate adaptation and peace building. She spoke of UNDP, UNDP expansive role across different areas, uh, alighting uh, uh, their focus on uh, creating win-win solutions in uh, peace building and climate action. Uh, we've uh, also, she mentioned that UNDP has uh, already a significant uh, adaptation portfolio in conflict uh, affected contexts. And uh, uh, she underscored the importance of embedding climate sensitivity within uh, climate finance and policies, arguing that uh, uh, it's key to institutionalize uh, uh, conflict sensitivity uh, to create a, a sustainable ecosystem in the long run. She also emphasizes the importance of making climate finance and policy uh, sensitive uh, uh, to conflict dynamics, uh, potentially using a, a gender mainstreaming as a model for integrating uh, peace building into climate action. And uh, finally, Catherine also uh, pointed out to the need for innovative uh, risk-tolerant projects uh, in uh, fragile settings, advocate, advocating for integrated uh, programming that aligns humanitarian aid and uh, adaptation efforts, remarking that the two are not mutually exclusive, but they can be aligned. Um, and uh, finally, also, she mentioned about the critical role of uh, uh, knowledge uh, uh, sharing among uh, conflict-affected states and the necessity of uh, awareness within the climate change community about these complex uh, interdependencies. Uh, moving to Grazia, uh, she talked about the um, uh, intricate connection between agriculture, climate security, and peace. She stressed the necessity for innovative research and policy making that effectively intertwines these areas and particularly uh, in uh, the context of conflict prone regions. Uh, Grazia underscored uh, uh, CGIR's commitment at COP28 to turn uh, research into practical region-specific toolkits, such as the Cloud Security Programming Dashboard that she was mentioning, uh, to support uh, greater entities uh, and other entities uh, in the GCF pipeline. Um, finally, Grazia also identified initial steps in incorporating uh, conflict sensitivity into standard practices, pointing out uh, uh, challenges like the absence of mandates in international uh, uh, finance institutions, 
to operate on conflict sensitivity, as well as the reluctance from certain um, uh, recipient nations to uh, even uh, discuss the topic. And um, so the, what she suggested was to use uh, incremental but impactful steps, um, such as, for example, uh, training uh, of staff in uh, IFIs, uh, as well as enhancing cooperation between financial and peacebuilding entities and organizations. So in conclusion, all the panelists emphasize the need for an ecosystem where various entities from international uh, uh, organizations to local communities can collaborate effectively uh, to support conflict sensitive action. Um, our panelists also unanimously uh, agreed that investing in conflict affected areas is not only a moral imperative, but also a strategic necessity crucial for broader climate action and global security. Um, so we hope that uh, as we look forward to COP28 beyond, uh, uh, the insights shared today will contribute to shaping the debate and on how, this, uh, uh, on how to build a resilient and peaceful community around the globe. We uh, can also agree that there is a lot of work that has to be done. Uh, and to this end, the CGR and uh, the Climber Initiative will continue studying and deploying activities that aim to promote conflict-sensitive adaptation and mobilize finance to our fragile conflict-affected regions. And uh, as our panelists mentioned earlier, uh, we all need to work together on uh, to reach these objectives, uh, and we look forward to uh, collaborating with you going forward. And uh, with these, I want to uh, say thank you to our uh, speakers for their insights, our moderators, Martin Goldberg and uh, Peter Ladrak, our technical support behind the scenes, and uh, all of you connected remotely for your participation in excellent questions. I look forward to continuing this conversation and invite you all to join our third and upcoming webinar on November 15th on the multiple benefits of climate adaptation for a disaster related displacement. Again, thank you all for your participation. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you. <laughs>